The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning. Hello and welcome to SCARF. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Scotty McQueen. I'm co-convening the SCARF Forum with Courtney Helen Grail. Uh, we have a, a fun one for you today. In fact, this is our final one of the semester, so I'd like to thank everybody who's contributed to SCARF so far. Uh, I'd also like to invite you to join us next semester when we reconvene the SCARF Forum on January 31st at the same time, 10 o'clock on Monday. And today we're going to jump right into it. Today's talk is entitled Surf, uh, Surfall Nisconan, the History and Cultural Politics of the Irish Surf Film Genre. We're joined today with uh, Stephen Boyd. He is a lecturer in film and digital media at the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, where he teaches non-Western cinema, amongst other subjects. He began his PhD under Dr. Ruth Barton in the School of Creative Arts at Trinity in March, 2021, on the history and analysis of Irish surf films. Stephen completed his MA in film studies at UCD in 2006 before teaching Irish cinema at NCAD and publishing within the field of Irish film studies. He then wrote the first academic articles on Irish surf culture, including Surfing a Post-Nationalist Wave, the role of surfing in Irish popular culture in 2014, and No Borders, post-national identity and surfing subculture in Ireland in 2018. His next publication is a history of adventure sports in Ireland in the upcoming book, The Atlas of Irish Sports, published by Cork University Press. And Stephen has been a regular commentator on Irish radio over the past 12 years and has contributed to the Irish Film Institute education courses. After his talk, we will have a short Q&A and if you'd like to participate in that, feel free to use the Q&A function down below, or uh, you can indicate if you'd like to ask your question live and we will spotlight you so you can ask your question directly to Stephen. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's uh, speaker and a, a very fun topic indeed, uh, Stephen, Boyle, uh, Stephen Boyd. Hi everybody, uh, and thank you, Scotty, uh, for the introduction. I wrote all that, by the way, so <laughs> if it sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, that's why. Um, good to see you all. And the first thing I just wanted to say was um, to the people who are online, my apologies that I haven't been able to get to this group, this term. I, I usually teach at this time on a Monday morning. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just a difficult time for me. I, I have a lot of teaching areas out in IADT, so. Um, finding time in the week to do anything sometimes is quite difficult and if I seem slightly unprepared this morning we'll see how it goes it's just because we had a disaster last night with uh, my fiber power broadband we switched provider over the weekend and um, to to get fiber power and um, we woke well, last night and we woke up this morning with no wi-fi so this is not my home I'm in <laughs> this is uh, this is another place and um, I don't have everything quite to hand that I would have liked to have, but um, I have most things. So good morning. Uh, I'll keep an eye on the time. Um, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time this morning. 
Um, so this morning's talk is a little bit of an introduction to my research, and I just really appreciate the um, uh, the group for having me and, and, and letting me speak and contribute, and it's, it's really great to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, this morning's discussion is about some of my research, and um, long story short, I began a PhD a number of years ago and, and then got a job working, and I've been working full-time for, for 10 or 12 years now, um, kind of doing academic teaching work. Um, and I just put aside the PhD and, and kind of when I put it aside, I realized that actually something from my own um, kind of personal interests was something that really I should be studying. Um, so for 25, 30 years, I've been surfing and surfing around the, the coast of Donegal predominantly. But obviously, I'm also um, involved in film studies and I teach film studies and digital media. Um, and it just occurred to me about 10 years ago that there was a kind of emergent um, surf culture in Ireland um, that, of course, surfing had been around in Ireland since the 1960s, but a culture is something different. And the culture kind of um, says something about people, place and identity. And that really fascinated me. And amongst that, at kind of the heart of surf culture really are surf films, surf magazines, surf shops as well, but surf movies. And I just want to say right out at the beginning that they're not what you think they are. Um, people are often surprised when I when I talk about surf films and, and they assume that what you're going to get is, say, uh, shots of surfing to um, rock music and kind of uh, what are called the kind of rip, slash and burn surf films. But that's not really what we have in Ireland. We have some quite interesting um, productions and they've been going on now for about 20 years. And part of my PhD is, is trying to kind of historicize that um, and create a kind of social history or critical history of the, the surf film in Ireland, but also to offer textual analyses of particular texts. So what I'm going to do this morning, just before I get into the, the actual PowerPoint, uh, is, is um, try to give you guys a bit of an overview of my research um, without going into too much depth about specific texts that hopefully in the coming years, if I come back and, and take part in one of these things again, um, I'll, I'll look in more depth at specific texts. But I thought for, as an opening point to my research, it's always valuable, I think, to kind of give people an idea of what I'm actually doing, because um, it's a very new topic. And for most people, um, they're kind of unaware of that there's a whole subculture of filmmaking um, around the practice of surfing. So um, yeah, let's get into it. So. What I'm going to do is going to try and round up what surf films are and where they came from and then talk about Irish surf movies and we'll see how we go on that. So I'll just share my screen and hopefully everything works okay. Um, so I'm sharing, uh, initially I'm just going to share this, this um, PowerPoint. So I hope you can all see this guys and um, I'll try and make this full screen for, for you all. So this is just the, the opening um <laughs> opening page of the presentation and the, the image behind it there guys is actually from a surf movie a uh, slightly dramatic uh, image um and that's from a movie called beyond the noise made in 2018 by andrew kineder an, uh, an australian surf filmmaker who spent some time in ireland uh, one of a number of kind of very peripatetic um filmmakers who ended up have ended up making films in different places around the world pursuing their interest in surfing so this paper is um, Surfing in the Movie, Surf Almost Gone On, The History and Cultural Politics of the Irish Surf Film Genre. And as I said, I am keeping an eye on the time, so um, you better get straight into it. Um, so um, 
Yeah. Uh, the first thing it's always important to do before you talk to people about surfing or surf, surf culture is I, I always find it's important that I have to kind of tell people a little bit about the history of the culture. Um, you may notice that I use the term culture or practice more often than I use the word sport. In fact, I very rarely use the word sport when I'm referring to surfing. One of the reasons for that is because surfing is quite an ancient practice. Surfing does not emerge in 20th century America as many people think it does. Um, it's not a kind of capitalist driven um, sport um, that comes from a consumer society as many people think it does. It's actually quite an ancient practice and it was linked intimately to cultural practices within a whole series of Polynesian islands, including Tahiti and Hawaii. So surfing began in ancient Polynesia and a whole variety of scholars, predominantly in Hawaii and the University of Honolulu have studied this. And some people have felt that it, because of the, the migration of peoples across the Pacific and how long that took and trying to follow that timeline, um, many people have felt that potentially surfing could be up to 4,000 years old. Now, it seems more likely that it's 1,000 years older or more, probably maybe around 400 AD um, when the practice began. Now, where it actually began is another interesting point. I'm, I'm sure you all think of it associated with Hawaii, um, the, 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 the island chain that, that the USA annexed in the 19th century. But modern research points out that people in Africa were body surfing hundreds of years ago, but more interestingly, that people were surfing reed boats in Peru, um, possibly thousands of years ago, these ancient reed boats. Now, what we now know about genetic evidence from Polynesia and the Hawaiian Islands suggests that there was contact between South America and Easter Island and the Marquesas, um, which, in which case the potential is that surfing actually came from Peru the other way across the Polynesian islands. So either way, it's a fascinating history. If any of you are interested in the links and reading about that, I can share that with you. It's nothing to do with cinema, but it is important to point that out when you approach the subject. Now, in, in the Polynesian islands, in Hawaii in particular, uh, but also in Tahiti, this was regarded as a quite distinct cultural practice. The image that I've shown you guys on the top right there is actually an image from one of the first wood carvings um, of, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cut out image of one of the first wood carvings of the arrival of Captain Cook's boat in, 19, in 1778 to the Hawaiian Islands. And in that first image of Hawaii is a surfer on a surfboard paddling out to meet Captain Cook's boat. So this was a practice that was fully inter integrated within Hawaiian culture by the time that Captain Cook discovered in inverted commas, the islands in 1778. Um, it was linked intimately to kind of, uh, actually to kind of social class and to uh, varying forms of kind of tribal chiefdoms, whereby um, people who had access in, on their lands to higher quality woods could make higher quality surfboards. That would also equate with your social status. So I mean, that's again a hugely interesting topic that Ben Finney was writing about right back from the 1960s, but we'll continue on from that. Now, Hawaii, Hawaii was absolutely um, under the thrall of surfing when the Europeans arrived. And Europeans uh, kind of wrote down that whole villages would disappear um, to engage in the surf. Men, women, children, elderly people 
would all assume when, when good waves appeared. But these practices quickly became discouraged by Christian miss missionaries. And the American historian Scott Laderman, in his brilliant kind of political history of surfing, Empire and Waves, has pointed out that this, this kind of has historically created an impression that Native Hawaiian people somehow stopped surfing or didn't surf. When in actual fact, it, you know, that's just something that's not true. But it certainly declined hugely. And there was also, uh, within 50 years, in fact, there was a huge decline in the indigenous population of Hawaii. I think up to 70% of the pe indigenous peoples on the islands died uh, because of um, uh, various diseases brought by Europeans. And remember, this is very recently, 1778. I mean, the Americas were discovered in 1492, uh, discovered. Um, so it's a couple of hundred years later that these the Hawaiian people were discovered. So surfing Hawaii and, and traditional culture gradually declined in Hawaii during the 19th century until the islands were eventually annexed by the USA in 1898. And that was a process that was ongoing over 40 or 50 years within uh, Hawaii. Um, now, a revival, again, in inverted commas, was led by Kanaka Maoli, so native Hawaiian people. Uh, but it was uh, actually the American tourism industry, which turned Hawaii into kind of a playground of American pastimes in the 20th century. Um, and that's what has kind of created the idea somehow that surfing is associated particularly with 20th century American culture. This image on the bottom right, by the way, in front of Diamond Head in Hawaii is of a native Hawaiian um, who um, is one of the first images of a, photographic images of a surfer that we actually have, that's from 1890. Now, really interestingly, like what are surf films? Um, like where did they come from? Who makes them and why? What kind of people and places do they represent? Well, surf films were around before there were surfers filmed on them. And a few authors, including John Engel in his book, Surfing in the Movies, has pointed out that the surf film and the surf painting actually goes back well into the 19th and 18th centuries. Here we have a small image from something you can Google right now if you want to take a look at it. Uh, Robert Paul's Rough Sea at Dover, an actuality from 1896. And very early on, you see that there's this kind of obsession with the visual spectacle of the wave. And that kind of element of visual spectacle is something that we heavily associate with the early cinema, and in particular, the cinema of attractions, as Tom Gunning describes it in his, his famous piece of writing, which has been you know, um, reiterated numerous times, uh, including in the cinema of attractions reloaded. So the surf film was something that was already present. And if you, if you guys just, I'm gonna skip forward to something to read from um, one of my own pieces of writing in one of my chapters here, that the surf film had visual predecessors in art, photography and film long before a surfboard rider was ever filmed riding a wave. These uh, antecedents lay primarily in early and silent films and in the sublime qualities of wave, sea and surf as a means of visual pleasure. These films were curiosities, but they also reflected a changing cultural relationship in Western societies with the beach and the coast, and increasingly uh, the view that these places were um, available for, for leisure time or, or, and actually a part of leisure capitalism, if we want to refer to it as that. Um, but actual film surf came slightly later. So like who else? The first images of surfing come from the Thomas Edison company in 1906. And very, very quickly in surf culture, we see in the films that are being made distinctions between mainstream um, surf films and countercultural surf films. 
So in the Edison films, what we get is what, what I might call a mainstream surf film. This is something that doesn't come from within the surf community itself. This is something produced by Robert Bonin, who was one of the Edison photographers. Um, and actually, I think we can take a, maybe a quick look at, at, at an image of that in a moment. Um, and maybe, maybe um, we, can, we can play it. Um, so I'm just skipping down again to something I'm reading from here. Sorry, this is all a result of me not, be, not being able to do this in the space I was supposed to. Um, so um, yeah, surfing and film quickly began to overlap and developments in camera technology into the 1930s, particularly in the United States, meant that amateurs were now able to create. Now very quickly, this meant that you had a countercultural kind of surf movie emerging. Um, at first, they were amateur films that people recorded with their friends, um, but ultimately that became the driving force of subcultural surf filmmaking. And um, even today, I mean, it's something I'll highlight in a moment. There's a really clear distinction between what you might call a kind of mainstream surf movie or something produced by an industrial film culture and something produced by the subculture itself. Um, so the Edison films, if we'll just take a quick look and maybe we'll play that slowly um, uh, while, uh, if we can there, while I'm, while I'm talking. Um, I, just, I just have that muted actually. So these, are, these films are some of the Thomas Edison films um, that were produced in Hawaii towards the, the end of the 19th century. And it really importantly, um, the, the basic kind of dramatic narrative, if we can find actual, the actual surfing images here, um, there we go, yeah. The basic dramatic narrative at the heart of all surf films is present here, that pitting people against wave motion causes natural drama. So these images were filmed in 1906. Um, and interestingly, these actualities lend a, a, a kind of acculturating hand to Hawaii um, at the end of the 19th century. And it was, process, it was a process of colonial acculturalization, whereby American culture kind of assumed uh, ownership of Hawaiian culture. Not only that, began to romanticize it. And surfing became heavily important in the, the, um, the, the kind of um, displaying of Hawaii as a kind of tourist-based possession of the United States um, with heavily kind of romanticized cultural practices like you just saw there within the image. Um, so um, yeah, I'll just go back to my slides there, if that's okay. Um, so surf movies, as you can probably tell, weren't particularly popular at this time. There was no one really to watch them and there weren't any surfers to look at them. Um, so the next surf film came along in 1926. And in, in, in the intervening period, you get a lot of kind of really curious and interesting surf films, all of them part of that kind of gradual romanticization of Hawaii and often deliberately displayed as a means of uh, marketing Hawaii as a, as a kind of tourist possession of the United States. So Sons of the Surf was the next film in 1926. And by the, by, the, by the 1930s, you can see this really early 16 millimeter camera advertisement kind of using surfing as the classic example of what that kind of camera might be used or employed for. So keep going. What are surf movies then? This is the question that, that you're, is probably on the tips of your, your tongues. So surf movies emerge in the 1950s and they the, the kind of first, if we want to call them professionally made surf films are still amateur surf films. They're, the first ones were produced by a man called Bud Brown, really interesting guy from California. 
And Bud Brown had served in World War II. Uh, he went back and became a lifeguard in California. And while he was lifeguarding, he started to see what he thought were really interesting things happening on the beach and in the water. So he started making films about them. Um, Brown became the archetypal surf filmmaker alongside um, someone with a similar name, uh, but not, not no relation. He doesn't have the E at the end of his name, Bruce Brown. And Bruce Brown made this film, Endless Summer, which we might take a quick clip from in a moment. Um, Endless Summer, some of you may have heard of that movie. That's easily the most fa famous and infamous surf film of all time. Uh, infamous because of its kind of uh, slightly imperial and colonial attitudes towards the um, uh, peoples of West Africa and other places. Um, but we'll come to that in a second. So uh, Bruce Brown was... Uh, <laughs> Although Bud Brown was probably the first filmmaker to kind of popularize the surf film, um, Bruce Brown was the person who kind of monetized it, if you like. And Bruce Brown with The Endless Summer made $30 million at the American box office in 1964 when he released this documentary. Bud Brown, previous to this, had been screening his surf films, as you can see here from the poster for Gun Ho, um, in civic auditoriums, in schools, in libraries and places, and charging people into them. By the end of the 1950s, he had turned that into a profession um, and he was showing films in the, in, in the summertime and surfing in the winter in Hawaii when, when the waves were at their biggest. Um, but when Bruce Brown came along, that the surf film changed completely. Um, a whole series of, kind of imitators had sprung up around Bud Brown, but Bruce Brown actually injected a lot of money and that money came into his productions. And that money came from surfboard producers and surf shop owners who were trying to use these films as a means to kind of publicize their, their surf filmmaking. So let's take a quick look if we can at um, The Endless Summer. My apologies for the clip of this. Um, I don't have my DVD player or DVD with me to show you this properly. So I'm using a, 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 um, a copy I didn't really want to show you. So here is Bruce Brown's Endless Summer, and you can see the racially patronizing attitude that is displayed in this film, which is about the, the gradual travels around the world of two surfers as they, as they search for uh, the perfect wave. In a few minutes in West hey, Africa. I think that you might need to stop sharing and then reshare the actual video because we can only ah. see PowerPoint. Okay, sorry. Okay, I'll do that now. Um, There we go. Hopefully that's okay with you guys. Yeah, we can see it now. Thank you. A primitive fishing village in Ghana. Most of these people had never seen a white man before. As they walked down the beach, they really wondered if they were doing the right thing. Didn't know whether the UN had been there yet or not. They were a little nervous on the beach, so they paddled right out in the water. Paddling out, they had the horrible thought that maybe surfing would violate some religious taboo of the natives and they'd attack. During the first ride, the hundreds of natives were dead silent, but when Robert pulled out, they really went wild. <laughs> that was the beginning of surfing in Ghana. The people couldn't believe it. They came down to the beach with their kids and their lunch and still had both hands free. I'll just reshare my screen now. So that was from Endless Summer. And, and a really short clip there, guys, to give you an idea of what the film is like. 
Um, but that film has been critiqued heavily by academics for its racial politics, its relationship with consumer capitalism, a kind of imperial colonial gaze that is you know, at the heart of it, um, the pursuit of kind of leisure capitalism and lifestyle sport at the expense of indigenous cultures, a whole range of things. So moving on quickly from the end of the summer, I could talk about that film for a long time, but we just got to move on a little bit and talk about how the surf film then changes going into the late 60s and early 70s. And movies like Pacific Vibrations, made by John Severson uh, in 1970, and latterly movies like um, the, uh, these Australian films, uh, Morning of the Earth and Crystal Voyager, these kind of movies became more indicative of the surf film as it progressed, and they were countercultural and subcultural surf films. So Crystal Voyager is probably the trippiest of those uh, featuring kind of a Pink Floyd soundtrack. And when Pink Floyd saw the film, they wanted to use that film actually as the background for their, one of their world tours at the time. Um, these films were, were kind of imbued with and kind of environmental and ecological ideology that whilst romanticizing the kind of places, uh, local places that they surfed, indigenous places as kind of primitive Arcadias, had something altruistic at their core, even though they remain resolutely white and masculine. Um, now, as time progressed, the surf film changed. Um, and throughout all of this, I should say, something I haven't addressed in this at all, is there's, there's always the kind of Hollywood uh, surf films of the 1950s. And when surf, you know, when Bud Brown films started to get popular in the 1950s, the Hollywood, um, uh, um, uh, sorry, Hollywood itself um, decided to kind of mimic that and try to make money from it and produce these kind of uh, beach party and surf party movies uh, at the heart of which were the Gidget films, obviously, but you get Blue Hawaii by Elvis and so forth as well. So I'm not talking about those films today. And it leads us to Ireland. So um, now I'm kind of getting into, I suppose, what um, my PhD research is focused on. So previously I've written about how an Irish surf culture has emerged in this country um, that began in 1966 really with the displaying of surfboards at the, the Royal Dublin Society in Dublin, but has now formed, as you can see, just an image of street art in Bundoran um, in 2015. It's kind of linked intimately to kind of, um, you know, both kind of myth, romantic myths about Irish landscape and culture today. Um, now, as part of that, we see, we've seen um, a linking with the Irish language and identity uh, towards the Irish surf film. We see that in previously published surf magazines, Tonta, which means wave, of course, in Irish. Um, you can see the uh, Finn McCool um, mythological narrative being kind of played up within the comic strip, Single Finn McCool, which is a, a surf-based comic strip by the Rosnella-based artist uh, Barry Britton. We've had books about Irish surf culture, and we, the language, again, is invoked in the naming of waves, something, again, many people are aware of, that surfers name spaces and waves. Um, and in this case, Isle of Sorak, that's aliens at the bottom of the Cliffs of Moher. So there is already a kind of surf culture within Ireland. The first surf films that emerge in Ireland come in the 1990s. And just like in the wider kind of um, history of Irish cinema and filmmaking, what we see is a tendency for both British and American representation of this island uh, prior to indigenous forms of production. So as in wider Irish cinema, American and British filmmakers were the first to occupy this representational space. 
Again, Ireland is this kind of space uncontaminated by the ills of consumerism and modern culture for US and Australian filmmakers and British filmmakers. So this film Litmus, uh, made in 1996, is one of the most famous surf films of all time, and that has quite a famous Irish sequence in it, uh, which relates um, the troubles in Ireland um, to surfing. It's something maybe I'll talk about much later in another presentation. And this tendency is something uh, Luke Gibbons has talked about this previously, that the absence of a visual tradition in Ireland, equal in stature to its literary counterpart, has meant that the dominant images of Ireland have emanated outside the country or have been produced at home with an eye on the foreign market. So the first Irish surf films then started to come a little bit after that in 2002. So the first Irish film, surf film was Eye of the Storm, produced by Joel Conroy, who would then go on to make Wave Riders. And there's a vibrant surf film within Ireland now. My filmography for my research goes over six pages. Some of those are feature films. They're eclectic in form and style. Um, they're produced outside of mainstream industrial channels. And they are, to me, um, as someone kind of studying this within the field of Irish film studies, um, a distinct subgenre of Irish film and dealing with similar things that um, Irish uh, representation uh, deals with in other forms of uh, cinematic uh, material. So there are subgenres within this documentary films, narrative films, uh, commercial films, community films, abstract films, personal films, experimental shorts edits and films that kind of exist as like stream of consciousness films. Almost all of these are a kind of creative nonfiction, which is really curious. You know, for a long time, I was trying to find a word to describe what they are. They're not documentaries. Um, they're not fiction films. They're a kind of creative nonfiction. Um, so the first film, uh, first decade is dominated by film and DVD releases that I spent years collecting up. And some of these are films that would just be so hard to get, like Waking Maeve was released on DVD all around the West of Ireland in, in a variety of shops, but they're hard to come by, yeah. Silver Safari was screened on RTE, Driven was only sold in surf shops. Um, so these films show new ways of representing and engaging traditional spaces. And they also have a kind of postmodern mythic culture that emerges from within the narratives themselves. They have a clear engagement with the Irish language, with culture and traditional music. And within them, surfing is kind of positioned as part of the folk culture and very much associated with heritage. There's a kind of heritage feel about this. Um, one of the key filmmakers we could mention, and a film that if you guys wanted to take a look at, I won't have time to screen it here. It's, only, it's one of the most famous short films, I would say. Uh, it's been viewed millions of times online, and that's Dark Side of the Lens by Mickey Smith. Um, Mickey Smith is actually a Cornish filmmaker, and you can see that his, his images of Ireland, um, as you can see there, um, I, I try to kind of remove the traditional forms of romanticism associated with the West of Ireland most obviously visually in John Ford's The Quiet Man, which was latterly used by Board Fulcher as a means to market Ireland as a tourist entity. Um, a key film we could mention would be from 2008, a film some of you probably heard of, it's the biggest Irish surf film. Um, it was the first Irish surf film to be supported by the Irish Film Board. It's narrated by Killian Murphy um, and, and it employs kind of Yates and Wilde and tries to associate Irish literature with surf culture. The film wanted to eschew the traditional stereotypes of Ireland and Irish people, but interestingly, it was also produced by uh, one of our most political filmmakers, certainly in the 1980s and early 90s, Margot Harkin from Derry. 
the film ostensibly follows a number of different stories and different vignettes, one of which is following the role of an Irish Hawaiian called George Freeth, who played a very important role in popularizing surfing in Ireland. It also kind of um, tries to articulate the Irish American experience of surfing in Ireland. And in the film, it's a little bit like what Diane Negra says, Irishness becomes a kind of all purpose identity credential um, and it's employed as such within the film. Um, another film we could mention would be from 2018. You can see the, the poster on the right there, Beyond the Noise. This film reflects a kind of wider change in the filmmaking subculture from film and DVD to online exhibition and production. So sites like Vimeo On Demand and Amazon Prime now house Irish surf films, as strange as it is to say, you can watch an Irish surf movie on Amazon Prime. Um, there's been an explosion in production um, and video professionals uh, in the west of Ireland. Often this is linked to surfing and, and filming the coast. There's been the emergence of feminist surf films. Um, Ebb and Flow um, it, it just recently screened at a documentary festival in Dublin is a good example of that. We have stars of Irish surf films. Eastkey Britain um, is a good example. We have new engagements with Irish masculinity as well and coastal representation. Um, so just in terms of Beyond the Noise, which we'll take a quick clip, clip of now, I am keeping an eye on the time because I, 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 am, I do want to wrap up in about five or five minutes or so, but we'll take a quick look, if you like, from at Beyond the Noise, um, just to give you an idea of how surf films are not what you think they are. Um, so let's go over to, um, and if I can, it's not letting me. Um, There we go. So I'm just going to show you the opening minutes or so of Beyond the Noise. So just for time, I'm going to wrap that up and, and come back to the presentation. So that's a, one of the more abstract films um, of um, the genre within Ireland. So I'm going to try and wrap this up as soon as I can. Um, what we have are commercial films produced in association with uh, as commercial presentations, but you know, are produced as films for commercial entities. We have feminist surf films like Into the Sea, which was 
an Irish surf film based in Iran. It brought surfing to Iran, a lunar cycle, ebb and flow, as I mentioned. We have Northern Irish surf films, Children of the Norn, No Borders, two films I've previously written about as kind of post-nationalist texts. We have Irish American surf films that employ the same tropes as we typically see within um, Irish American engagement with Irish culture. Um, we have community films. This is an image of a film I went to see in Bundoran, um, which uh, packed out cinema in, in um, January, I think it was 2014. Um, and then we have big cinematic productions as well, like Between Land and Sea, which um, documents a year surfing in, in, in Clare. Um, so just coming towards the end then, and I, I'll move through this like quite quickly. I have quite a lot of stuff to talk to you guys about, as you can tell. Um, so what we see are changing representations in national and regional identities and a move from traditional culture to kind of globalized and postmodern culture. We see transformations in signs and symbols of Irishness, often entailing a loss of depth of meaning, often layering meaning. We see marginalized areas traditionally in the west of Ireland re re repositioned as empowered spaces in the films. Um, you know, previously in movies like Ryan's Daughter and The Quiet Man, that this is a space to be tamed, you know, uh, by filmmakers from outside of Ireland. So we see a shift of meaning in Irish culture from urban Dublin to the west of Ireland. But this has also become central to the wider marketing, which has been quite detrimental to the spaces itself of the wild Atlantic way. We see a transnational and, and kind of post-national discourse present within these. We also see an interesting environmental and ecological ideology embedded within the texts, which is something quite new. These films are quite politically liberal and inclusive, even if they're still predominantly male. And just concluding then, we can say that Irish surf films are part of a form of subcultural filmmaking. They represent a growing genre of Irish film. They offer new modes of national and regional representation, and they can be critiqued in similar ways to other forms of Irish film, art, and literature. They're very heavily associated with something core and unique to cinema, which is that displaying a visual spectacle and emerges from, from that idea of the cinema of attractions that Tom Gunning has described. They're works of fiction, um, but it's a kind of creative nonfiction. Um, what we have is also the commodification of direct experience that highlights more than anything that surfing is in fact a widescreen activity. And that's me concluding. And just that image at the end there is not me. This is from a surf film. It's one of the strangest things where you see the commodification of experience. This is my local surf spot for my whole life. Um, and then I saw it appear in a film and I had the strangest experience watching it um I, 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 anyway but that's how it ever so i'll stop sharing i'm sorry that i went over slightly longer than i was supposed to i probably had far more there than i needed to get across in the short space of time but i just wanted to give you guys an overview of the research so thanks a million and thanks for having me yeah well yeah. thank you thank you Stephen, for uh, a terrific talk really it would be difficult to find a topic i know less about than surfing <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think you really gave a very good introduction and, and I, I have a much better kind of understanding of, of the genre than I did. So I think uh, well done in, in, in the way you structured that. So I know you have to go uh, soon because you've actually put off, postponed one of your classes um, so you could do this today and you need to get there and teach. So what I'm going to do is just ask you one question to give uh, uh, the viewers a second to ask a question if they have a pressing one. And uh, 
First, I'd like to compliment you on one thing, which is despite your Wi-Fi problems and your logistical troubles, uh, being, you were very relaxed and natural, and you had a very um, uh, a way of just speaking to us and not reading uh, for mu much of the talk that I was really happy to see, because one of the benefits of SCARF, from my perspective, is it gives us an opportunity to sort of view and model ourselves after different approaches to presentational work. And uh, you did something I've been um, kind of wanting to see for a while, which is to see someone just kind of talk to us and not read to us for a little while. And I really appreciated that aspect of what you did. So thanks for that. I just wanted to ask you, there seems to be kind of a tension uh, here between the kind of commercial and consumerist aspects of surfing and the countercultural sort of aspects. And um, to that degree, you mentioned kind of the creative nonfiction. And I was wondering, how many or if at all these Irish surf films that you're talking about were uh, conventionally scripted, directed, acted, um, pure fiction, i.e. like Point Break or something like that? And, and what percent had this sort of documentary or nonfiction aspect? So it's, it's a really good question, Scotty. It's, it gets to the heart of it. Um, I, there's, we have, there's two examples of a, like a scripted pieces of narrative fiction. Um, one of which I didn't highlight there called Riders to the Sea by Orla Walsh. You can have a look, anyone could have a look at that online actually. It's, it's on the Irish Film Board website. Um, and that's a short film. And then there's another short narrative fiction film as well. Apart from that, Scotty, they are, they are incredibly eclectic in form. Um, like strangely, that the clip I just showed you there actually has a has a script, and it, it kind of it, it has a kind of a poetic script played over it, which I didn't get to in the clip. Um, so there's there's the, the kind of traditional ideas of film form or, or documentary form when we approach them are things that these films don't really fit into those categories. It's very very hard to categorize them as such. So. Of the six page filmography that I have, two of those films are short pieces of narrative fiction. And um, like, then you could say that Wave Riders, which was supported by the film board and Between Land and Sea were highly organized, industrially produced documentaries um, that were well-planned and storyboarded and scripted. Um, um, you know, but beyond that, um, beyond that, they are kind of very, very, um, eclectic and representative of, of filmmakers who have kind of very peripatetic lives, as I was saying, people who kind of travel around Ireland or um, the world and end up in one place, do something artistically, go somewhere else, make something artistically. And often the form of the films themselves is dependent on the footage they, they shot or who they heard in the pub that weekend, you know, playing a piece of traditional music and playing it over. So it's really, really eclectic structure and form, yeah. That's interesting and thank you. And we do have a question that's come in, so I think I'm gonna ask it. You can yeah. um, answer it as, as much as you like and I think we'll say goodbye after that. Okay. So um, this is from Dennis Murphy and he says, thanks Stephen, intriguing topic. Do you have any thoughts on the use of surfing and advertising? And of course, he's thinking of the famous Guinness ad from 1999 that was significant enough to acquire further crossover cultural status by being mentioned in a Chrissy Moore song. Yeah. Although he says he thinks the ad itself was produced by a UK ad agency. But he asks this, he supposes, as it relates to the commodification thread of your analysis. 
Yeah, I think it's a really, you've both highlighted something, what you both asked me, which is that constant tension between the commercial and the, um, what, what is kind of called the soul surfer ideology within surf culture, which is this idea of people who try to remove themselves from consumer or capitalist-based surf culture. Um, it's Dennis, that's a really good question. And it does, it, it highlights that surfing and the, the culture of surfing, and it's often very uncomfortable for me, me as someone who engages with it, is, is very often treading that line between commercial presentation and, um, and the image. I think at the heart of that association with advertising culture is what I was saying about visual spectacle. You know, at the heart of advertising is creating something kind of, you know, uh, visually satisfying for people to, to kind of, to try and associate a, a thought with the image. Um, and I think surfing kind of occupies that role. It is uncomfortable for, it's like the, 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 the array of writing on surf culture is not huge. It's growing in the last 10, 15 years. But that discussion is at the very, very heart of it. And there's a great book actually called The Critical Surf Studies Reader, which talks about the political economy of surf culture. And um, it highlights those kind of uncomfortable connections. But really interestingly, the other side of that is that bizarrely really quite amazing art has come out of some of those commercial and marketing presentations. So one of the films I mentioned there was a lunar cycle, which is a feminist surf film featuring Eastie Britain, also made by Andrew Kynader, who made Beyond the Noise, which is the clip I showed you. That is a film that is made ostensibly for the Finisterre clothing brand, which is the jacket I'm wearing now. That's just totally, that, that's, that's I didn't mean that for that to happen. It's just really cold where I am. Um, and in the film, there's absolutely no evidence of the brand whatsoever. Um, what you get is quite an abstract and avant-garde feminist surf film. Um, and they are looking for kind of kudos by displaying that on their website and through their YouTube channel and Vimeo channel. So I'm probably not answering the question, but that tension at the, at the heart of surf culture um, highlights what you asked, Dennis, which is what are those connections between surfing and advertising and capitalism more widely, actually, as, as an agent of capitalism in the 20th century? Yeah, so there. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephen. I'd just like to remind our viewers to join us on January 31st as we resume next semester SCARF at the same time, 10 a.m. on Monday. So we hope to see you all there. Thank you for your time and for a terrific presentation. And we hope uh, we wish you well on your class and the rest of your day. Thanks, Scotty. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Sorry I have to run. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.